0: Section 14 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 2, by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 23, Birth of the Empire, Death of the Duke, Part 2. Lord Palmerston did not come to power again at that moment. He might have gone in with Lord Derby if he had been so inclined, but Lord Derby, who it may be said had succeeded to that title on the death of his father in the preceding year, still talked of testing the policy of free trade at a general election, and, of course, Palmerston was not disposed to have anything to do with such a proposition. Nor had Palmerston, in any case, much inclination to serve under Darby, of whose political intelligence he thought poorly, and whom he regarded principally as what he called a flashy speaker." Lord Derby tried various combinations in vain, and at last he had to experiment with a cabinet of undiluted protectionists. He had to take office, not because he wanted to or because anyone in particular wanted him, but simply and solely because there was no one else who could undertake the task. He formed a cabinet to carry on the business of the country for the moment, and until it should be convenient to have a general election, when he fondly hoped That by some inexplicable process a protectionist reaction would be brought about, and he should find himself at the head of a strong administration. The ministry which Lord Derby was able to form was not a strong one. Lord Palmerston described it as containing two men of mark, Derby and Disraeli, and a number of ciphers. It had not, except for these two, a single man of any political ability, and had hardly one of any political experience. It had an able lawyer for Lord Chancellor, Lord St. Leonard's, but he was nothing of a politician. The rest of the members of the government were respectable country gentlemen. One of them, Mr. Harries, had been Chancellor of the Exchequer in a short-lived government, that of Lord Goderich, in 1827, and he had held the office of Secretary of War for a few months some time later. He was forgotten by the existing generation of politicians, and the general public only knew that he was still living when they heard of his accession to Lord Darby's government. The Earl of Malmesbury, Sir John Packington, Mr. Walpole, Mr. Henley, and the rest, were men whose antecedents scarcely gave them warrant for any higher claim in public life than the position of Chairman of Quarter Sessions, nor did their subsequent career in office contribute much to establish a loftier estimate of their capacity. The head of the government was remarkable for his dashing blunders as a politician, quite as much as for his dashing eloquence. His new lieutenant, Mr. Disraeli, had in former days christened him very happily the Rupert of debate, after that fiery and gallant prince whose blunders generally lost the battles which his headlong courage had nearly won. Concerning Mr. Disraeli himself, it is not too much to say that many of his own party were rather more afraid of his genius than of the dullness of any of his colleagues. It is not a pleasant task, in the best of circumstances, to be at the head of a tolerated ministry in the House of Commons, a ministry which is in a minority and only holds its place because there's no one ready to relieve it of the responsibility of office. Mr. Disraeli himself, at a much later date, gave the House of Commons an amusing picture of the trials and humiliations which await the leader of such a forlorn hope. He had now to assume that position without any previous experience of office. Rarely, indeed, is the leadership of the House of Commons undertaken by anyone who has not previously held office, and Mr. Disraeli entered upon leadership and office at the same moment for the first time. He became Chancellor of the Exchequer and Leader of the House of Commons. Among the many gifts with which he was accredited by fame, not a single admirer had hitherto dreamed of including a capacity for the mastery of figures— in addition to all the ordinary difficulties of the ministry of a minority, there was, in this instance, the difficulty arising from the obscurity and inexperience of nearly all its members. Facetious persons dubbed the new administration the Who Who Ministry. The explanation of this odd nickname was found in a story, then in circulation about the Duke of Wellington. The Duke, it was said, was anxious to hear from Lord Derby at the earliest moment all about the composition of his cabinet. He was overheard asking the new Prime Minister in the House of Lords the names of his intended colleagues. The Duke was rather deaf, and like most deaf persons, spoke in very loud tones, and of course had to be answered in tones also rather elevated. That which was meant for a whispered conversation became audible to the whole House, As Lord Derby mentioned each name, the Duke asked in wonder and eagerness, Who? Who? After each new name came the same inquiry. The Duke of Wellington had clearly never heard of most of the new ministers before. The story went about, and Lord Derby's administration was familiarly known as the Who Who Government. Lord Derby entered office with the avowed intention of testing the protection question all over again but he was no sooner in office than he found that the bare suggestion had immensely increased his difficulties. The formidable organization which had worked the free trade cause so successfully seemed likely to come into political life again, with all its old vigor. The free traders began to stand together again the moment Lord Darby gave his unlucky hint. Every week that passed over his head did something to show him the mistake he had made, when he hampered himself with any such undertaking as the revival of the protection question. Some of his colleagues had been unhappily and blunderingly outspoken in their addresses to their constituents seeking for re-election, and had talked as if the restoration of protection itself were the grand object of Lord Darby's taking office. The new Chancellor of the Exchequer had been far more cautious. He only talked vaguely of those remedial measures which great productive interests, suffering from unequal taxation, have a right to expect from a just government. In truth, Mr. Disraeli was well convinced at this time of the hopelessness of any agitation for the restoration of protection, and would have been only too glad of any opportunity for a complete, and at the same time, a safe, disavowal of any sympathy with such a project— The government found their path bristling with troubles created for them by their own mistake in giving any hint about the demand for a new trial of the free trade question. Any chance they might otherwise have had of making effective head against their very trying difficulties was completely cut away from them. The Free Trade League was reorganized. A conference of liberal members of the House of Commons was held at the residence of Lord John Russell in Chesham Place, at which it was resolved to extract or extort from the government a full avowal of their policy with regard to protection and free trade. The feat would have been rather difficult of accomplishment, seeing that the government had absolutely no policy to offer on the subject, and were only hoping to be able to consult the country as one might consult an oracle. The Chancellor of the Exchequer, when he made his financial statement, accepted the increased prosperity of the few years preceding, with an unction which showed that he, at least, had no particular notion of attempting to reverse the policy which had so greatly contributed to its progress. Mr. Disraeli pleased the Peelites and the Liberals much more by his statement than he pleased his chief or many of his followers. His speech, indeed, was very clever. A new financial scheme he could not produce, for he had not had time to make anything like a complete examination of the finances of the country, but he played very prettily and skillfully with the facts and figures, and conveyed to the listeners the idea of a man who could do wonderful things in finance if he had only had a little time and were in the humor. Everyone outside the limits of the extreme and unconverted protectionists was pleased with the success of his speech. People were glad that one who had proved himself so clever with many things should have shown himself equal to the uncongenial and unwonted task of dealing with dry facts and figures. The House felt that he was placed in a very trying position, and was well pleased to see him hold his own so successfully in it. Mr. Disraeli merely proposed in his financial statement to leave things as he found them, to continue the income tax for another year, as a provisional arrangement pending that complete re-examination of the financial affairs of the country to which he intimated that he found himself quite equal at the proper time. No one could suggest any better course, and the new chancellor came off on the whole with flying colors. His very difficulties had been a source of advantage to him. He was not expected to produce a financial scheme at such short notice and if he was not equal to a financier's task, it did not so appear on his first occasion of trial. The government on the whole did not do badly during this period of their probation. They introduced and carried a militia bill for which they obtained the cordial support of Lord Palmerston, and they gave a constitution to New Zealand, and then in the beginning of July the Parliament was prorogued and the dissolution took place. The elections were signalized by very serious riots in many parts of the country. In Ireland, particularly, party passions ran high. The landlords and the police were on one side, the priests and the popular party on the other, and in several places there was some bloodshed. It was not in Ireland, however, a question about free trade or protection. The great mass of the Irish people knew nothing about Mr. Disraeli, probably had never heard his name and did not care who led the House of Commons. The question which agitated the Irish constituencies was of tenant right in the first place, and the time had not yet arrived when a great minister from either party was prepared to listen to their demands on this subject. There was also much bitterness of feeling remaining from the discussions on the Ecclesiastical Titles Bill, but it may be safely said that not one of the questions that stirred up public feeling in England had the slightest popular interest in Ireland, and the question which the Irish people considered essential to their very existence did not enter for one moment into the struggles that were going on all over England. The speeches of ministers in England showed the same lively diversity as before on the subject of protection. Mr. Disraeli not only threw protection overboard, but boldly declared that no one could have supposed the Ministry had the slightest intention of proposing to bring back the laws that were repealed in 1846. In fact, he declared, the time had gone by when such exploded politics could ever interest the people of this country. On the other hand, several of Mr. Disraeli's colleagues evidently spoke in the fullness of their simple faith that Lord Derby was bent on setting up again the once beloved and not yet forgotten, protective system. But from the time of the elections, nothing more was heard about protection or about the possibility of getting a new trial for its principles. The elections did little or nothing for the government. The dreams of a strengthened party at their back were gone. They gained a little, just enough to make it unlikely that anyone would move a vote of want of confidence at the very outset of their reappearance before Parliament, But not nearly enough to give them a chance of carrying any measure which would really propitiate the Conservative Party throughout the country. They were still to be the ministry of a minority, a ministry on sufferance. They were a ministry on sufferance when they appealed to the country, but they were able to say then that when their cause had been heard, the country would declare for them. They now came back to be a ministry on sufferance, who had made the appeal and seen it rejected. It was plain to everyone that their existence as a ministry was only a question of days. Speculation was already busy as to their successors, and it was evident that a new government could only be formed by some sort of coalition between the Whigs and the Peelites. Among the noteworthy events of the general election was the return of Macaulay to the House of Commons. Edinburgh elected him in a manner particularly complimentary to him and honourable to herself he was elected without his solicitation, without his putting himself forward as a candidate, without his making any profession of faith or doing any of the things that the most independent candidate was then expected to do, and in fact, in spite of his positive declaration that he would do nothing to court election. He had for some years been absent from Parliament. Some difference had arisen between him and certain of his constituents on the subject of the Maynooth grant, Complaints, too, had been made by Edinburgh constituents of Macaulay's lack of attention to local interests and of the intellectual scorn which they believed he exhibited in his intercourse with many of those who had supported him. The result of this was that at the general election of 1847, Macaulay was left third on the poll at Edinburgh. He felt this deeply. He might have easily found some other constituency but his wounded pride hastened a resolution he had for some time been forming to retire to a life of private literary labor. He therefore remained out of Parliament. In 1852, the movement of Edinburgh toward him was entirely spontaneous. Edinburgh was anxious to atone for the error of which he had been guilty. Macaulay would go no farther than to say that if Edinburgh spontaneously elected him, he would deem it a very high honor and should not feel myself justified in refusing to accept a public trust offered to me in a manner so honorable and so peculiar. But he would not do anything whatever to court favor. He did not want to be elected to Parliament, he said. He was very happy in his retirement. Edinburgh elected him on those terms. He was not long allowed by his health to serve her, but so long as he remained in the House of Commons it was as member for Edinburgh." On September fourteenth, 1852, the Duke of Wellington died. His end was singularly peaceful. He fell quietly asleep about a quarter past three in the afternoon in Walmer Castle, and he did not wake any more. He was a very old man, in his eighty-fourth year, and his death had naturally been looked for as an event certain to come soon. Yet when it did come, thus naturally and peacefully, it created a profound public emotion. No other man in our time ever held the position in England which the Duke of Wellington had occupied for more than a whole generation. The place he had won for himself was absolutely unique. His great deeds belonged to a past time. He was hardly anything of a statesman. He knew little and cared less about what may be called statecraft, and as an administrator he had made many mistakes but the trust which the nation had in him as a counselor was absolutely unlimited. It never entered into the mind of any one to suppose that the Duke of Wellington was actuated in any step he took, or advice he gave, by any feeling, but a desire for the good of the state. His loyalty to the sovereign had something antique and touching in it. There was a blending of personal affection with the devotion of a state servant which lent a certain romantic dignity to the demeanor and character of one who otherwise had but little of the poetical or the sentimental in his nature. In the business of politics he had but one prevailing anxiety, and that was that the Queen's government should be satisfactorily carried on. He gave up again and again his own most cherished convictions, most ingrained prejudices, in order that he might not stand in the way of the queen's government and the proper carrying on of it. This simple fidelity, sometimes rather whimsically displayed, stood him often instead of an exalted statesmanship, and enabled him to extricate the government and the nation from difficulties in which a political insight far more keen than his might have failed to prove a guide. It was for this true and tried, this simple and unswerving devotion to the national good, that the people of England admired and revered him. He had not what would be called a lovable temperament, and yet the nation loved him. He was cold and brusque in manner, and seemed in general to have hardly a gleam of the emotional in him. This was not because he lacked emotions. On the contrary, his affections and his friendships were warm and enduring, and even in public he had more than once given way to outbursts of emotion such as a stranger would never have expected from one of that cold and rigid demeanor. When Sir Robert Peel died, Wellington spoke of him in the House of Lords with the tears which he did not even try to control running down his cheeks. But in his ordinary bearing there was little of the manner that makes a man a popular idol. He was not brilliant or dashing or emotional or graceful, he was dry, cold, self-contained. Yet the people loved him and trusted in him, loved him perhaps especially because they so trusted in him. No face and figure were better known at one time to the population of London than those of the Duke of Wellington. Of late, his form had grown stooped and he bent over his horse as he rode in the park or down Whitehall like one who could hardly keep himself in the saddle. Yet he mounted his horse to the last and indeed could keep in the saddle after he had ceased to be able to sit erect in an armchair. He sometimes rode in a curious little cab of his own devising, but his favorite way of going about London was on the back of his horse. He was called par excellence, the duke. The London working man who looked up as he went to or from his work and caught sight of the bowed figure on the horse, took off his hat and told some passerby, there goes the duke. His victories belonged to the past, they were but traditions even to middle-aged men in the Duke's later years, but he was regarded still as an embodiment of the national heroism and success a modern St. George in a tightly-buttoned frock coat and white trousers. End of Section 14